0: Over the past many weeks, we have been walking through the book of Exodus, and we reached a portion in Exodus chapter 20 where we slowed down just a bit and took about one verse at a time because we were focusing on the Ten Commandments. And so it's been a little while since we've kind of seen the, the big picture and the flow of the events where, where we are in the middle of Exodus And so in Exodus chapter 19, it describes the people coming before Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb. And so the people are gathered there and and encamped near the mountain. And Moses has already gone up to meet with God and then come back down the mountain. And what we see described in Exodus chapter 20 are the words of God that he spoke Not only in the hearing of Moses, but in the hearing of all the people. And so all the people have heard the voice of the Lord. And not only have they heard the voice of the Lord, but they have seen the incredible display of God's presence on top of the mountain. In chapter 19, it describes the scene as that of great flashes of lightning and smoke and earthquakes. And so it's a very powerful display of God's presence. It's what we come to know as a theophany, a visible manifestation of the presence of God among his people. And so the people are there gathered. They've seen all of this. And now after the Lord has spoken these 10 words or these 10 commands, Moses reminds us of what the people have seen and their response to it. And in this passage, we see the response of the people to the word of the Lord. And we also hear the Lord speaking to Moses and reminding him to teach the people how he is to be revered and how his name is to be honored. And so let's read these words together, beginning in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet, and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance, and they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed." Let's bow before the Lord together. Our Father, we come before your holy word tonight and we desire to understand what this is teaching us about how we, as your people, should relate to you as our God, as our creator and our redeemer. let Lord help us tonight to understand and to then put into practice these words. May they move us to worship, proper worship of you May these words lead us to honor and to fear your name. Lord, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled my first point from this passage tonight, Don't be afraid, but fear. Don't be afraid, but fear. Seems like a paradox, doesn't it? And in a way, it kind of is, because it comes from verse number 20, where Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. But then in the same verse, he says that God has come so that the fear of God will be with you. And so on the one hand, he says, don't be afraid. But then he says, but you should have the fear of God with you. So don't fear, but fear. So there's two senses in which I think this is to be understood. And and the first sense is this, in recognition of the Lord's awesome power and holiness, the people in verse number 18 and 19, they respond with a natural trepidation and fear. And so they respond to the sights and the sounds that they have seen on the top of the mountain. And and they are literally trembling with fear. Some of the words that are used here where it says that the people shook or they trembled with fear, it's the same word that's used in Isaiah chapter 6 where it says that the the very foundations or or the pillars of the temple shook with the presence of the Lord in the temple in that vision that Isaiah saw. And so the people are literally shaking, trembling in fear. Why? Because they have just seen the Almighty God the creator of the universe, an infinite being, come and reveal himself to them, at least in a limited way, and even in that small, limited revelation of who God is, it was overwhelming. It was overpowering. Thunder and lightning and flashes of fire and smoke and loud noises, and they trembled with fear. They drew back. They fell back from the mountain, and, and they didn't want to approach. They didn't want to come near. you remember in, back in chapter 19, the Lord gave Moses specific warnings to the people to not come too close to the mountain? Well, after they've seen the Lord and seen his power, there's no worrying about that. They, they don't want to come anywhere near the mountain. They're afraid at what they have seen. So there's a, there's a sense in which there's a natural fear and trembling in the presence of almighty God. But what Moses desires for them is to move beyond that to an abiding reverence and awe of God. So it's one thing to, to have your knees shaking and you falling backwards in trembling fear because of the sights and the sounds of the overwhelming presence of God. But what about the next day or the day after that, or 20 years from now when they're still wandering through the wilderness? Or what about when they finally reach the promised land? And we read in Deuteronomy chapter four that Moses is reminding them of this day. 40 years later, he's reminding them of this day because they're about to go into the promised land. And he says, remember, remember. So it's one thing to have a, that in the moment fear, that physical fear because of what you're seeing and experiencing. But Moses says to them, I don't want you to necessarily fear that way because God has come not to put you to death, not to judge you, not to kill you, but God has come to test you and to prove you so that the fear of God might be with you. And that idea of with you is the idea of continuance, the idea of remaining. In other words, what Moses wanted for them was not just a momentary fear or a natural response of fear. He wanted an abiding reverence for God that would lead to obedience. In fact, it says in verse number 20, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid God has come to test you or to prove you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, a a good, healthy fear of the Lord is intended to have a purifying, holy effect on his people to keep them from sinning. And so he doesn't want them to have a momentary physical reaction of fear. He wants them to have an abiding spiritual reverence and awe for the Lord, their God that will last with them. Even after this experience of Sinai has faded in their memories, he wants them to abide in the Lord and in his word. One commentator says this about this passage. He says, it is not a great test of whether Israel fears Yahweh when there is so much electricity in the air. Who would not tremble and feel overwhelmed? But what happens to that fear when the fireworks stop? The Lord is longing not only for that proper fear of him in Sinai's shadow, but for that fear that is faithful and consistent over the long haul. Will they let their fear in the realm of the emotions transform into a revering in the realm of the will. Yahweh, the Lord, wants to discover not only whether they will respond to the phenomena with the appropriate fear, but whether they will respond to the declaration of Yahweh's expectations with the appropriate revering. In other words, will they respond not just to the signs and the wonders with fear, but will they respond to the words with fear and with reverence? And so Moses desires for them to not fear in a momentary physical reaction, but he wants them to fear in an abiding reverence for the Lord, their God. Secondly, I think this passage reveals that the people are not to be worshiping gods, but worshiping God. So don't fear, but fear and don't worship God's, small g, worship God, capital G, and singular. And so beginning in verse 22, he moves into describing kind of a a review of the main aspects of the Ten Commandments as a reminder to, to them of how they are to fear the Lord. And the way they are to fear the Lord and to honor His name is first and foremost by worshiping the true God exclusively. Worshiping the true God exclusively. And so they're not to worship gods, but worship God and to worship him and him alone exclusively. And before we even move into that, look at verse number 22, because he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. How is the worship of the one true God to be governed? It's by his word, isn't it? How do we as his people decide how to worship God? When we come together and gather as his people to worship, how do we worship him? How would the Israelites come and gather together to worship him? Would they be influenced by their time in Egypt and all the pagan practices that were around them? Would they be influenced by the Canaanites to the land where they were headed toward? What would be the influences on them that would that would govern how they would worship their God? What the Lord is telling Moses here, and he is to tell the people, is that the way their worship of God is to be informed and governed is by the very word of God himself. In other words, the Lord himself sets the terms and the ways in which he desires to be worshiped. Some theologians call this the regulative principle, in the sense that the the regulative principle, how worship is to be regulated, how it is to be set up, governed, is by the word of the Lord. And so, not not a bunch of man made ideas, and hey, let's try this because this might work. So, not pragmatism, and and not democracy. Hey, let's all get together and vote on the way that we should worship God, not what's popular. But the way that we should worship God is the way that he has told us to worship him through his word. And so he reminds them that he has spoken to them from heaven. And the first thing he reminds them about in the worship of the true God is that it is to be exclusive. Exclusive worship. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold couple of interesting things about verse number 23 first of all he says do not make any gods to be alongside me alongside me even that prepositional phrase alongside me next to me what does that communicate it communicates a rival doesn't it it communicates some other image or entity or being that is set up to be on par with God. And God is reminding them there can be no such thing. Even, even an, an image like a statue or, or something that is intended by the craftsman to represent the true God, Yahweh. Even if they're not worshiping Baal or, or Molech or one of these other ancient Near Eastern gods, even if their intent is to worship Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. But in doing so, they make an an altar or an idol of something. They are setting that up as a rival to God. And it's interesting that in Deuteronomy, when Moses refers back to this event, he refers back to this day, he draws specific attention and, and mentions it on more than one occasion that at that time, you heard the voice, but you saw no what? No form. You saw no form. You saw no body, no image, no, no visible representation. Other than, other than the, the phenomena of the lightning and flashing and, and the thunder, you did not see a form of God. Why is that? Because God, as spirit, as infinite being, cannot be contained or represented by a simple form. Which is why in the second commandment, he specifically said, no graven images, no likenesses of anything. And so nothing alongside of God, nothing in rivalry to God, nothing that would be set up in parallel to God. He and he alone is to be worshipped as supreme, as the Lord of heaven and earth. There's another prepositional phrase in here that I think is interesting, and that he says, do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. For yourselves. It's a very interesting phrase because it communicates a couple of things. One is, I think, that that one is the fact that when a a person makes a God, that God becomes the thing that they worship, and it becomes something that they set their focus on. And some people try to, even if they're attempting to worship the true God or attempting to worship rightly, sometimes they will mistakenly set up something as an aid or as an help for themselves to aid them in worship. And that's that's one view of, of idols or images or even photographs, pictures. They can be set up as aids of worship, helps, something for yourself to help you. But God did not give us anything to help us in worship. He did not give us any visible forms, no images, no statues, nothing as an aid to worship him because he is the invisible spirit. But also I think it's interesting because for yourselves, there is something embedded in that idea that, that when, when a a craftsman makes an image or makes an idol, that when he makes that God, he is making that God. and, And even in the legends and the myths and the, the mythology that went around with these false worships, And and the images that were made to represent these false gods, there was in in the making of these gods and in the telling of these god stories, there was underlying all of it human desires. Human desires and wants. I'll give you an example, and I've mentioned this before, but in Canaanite worship, the god Baal or Baal, he was the god of fertility in the Canaanite world. So why, why would you offer a sacrifice to Baal or pray to Baal? You would do that so that he would rain on your crops and you would have healthy crops or that he would bless your family and you would have many children and your home and your land would be fertile. Well, what's, what's good about that? Well, it benefits you, right? So it benefits you. So, and that's how a lot of this ancient near Eastern worship went is you worship the God and you, you pray to the God and you sacrifice to the God for what that God could give you. And so for yourselves, it became very self-centered. So no rivals to God, no selfish making of gods, no creating God in your own image so that he will give you what you want. No, you must worship God in the way that he prescribes, and you must worship him and him alone exclusively. We see in verse number 24 that the worship of the true God is to be with single-minded devotion and simplicity. Single-minded devotion and simplicity. We see it in verse 24 where he says, Make an altar of earth for me. And on that altar of earth, sacrifice your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings. And then in verse 25, we see something similar when he says, if you do make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. So what, is, what does this mean? Why, why would the Lord make a point of telling Moses to make the altar at which the Lord is worshipped to be a very simple altar made of earth or made of uncut or undressed stones. Why, Why would he make that a point? Well, many commentators suggest that in the Canaanite world and in the ancient world at large, that their altars when they would build them, would become very ornate, artistic displays of the craftsman's work. And that when you gather around this altar, then you're not focused on the worship of God. You're focused on the beauty of the thing that has been made. And so what the Lord is saying here through Moses is that when you come to worship me, I want you to come and worship me in simplicity like your forefathers worshipped me out of the heart, When they would in spontaneous worship to me, they would gather stones together and they would offer a sacrifice to me. So in other words, I don't want it to be about how great you are or how good of a craftsman you are or how great you can build this and and how beautiful you can make it. I want it to be about the focus being on me, not on the people who made the altar, not on the craftsmanship, on the design. And by the way, we can fall into that trap today can't we we can fall into that trap today now we may not have an altar in which we set up stones and offer animal sacrifices on it but we do gather in places of worship that can be very 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 ornate and it's it's something where you and there's there's I think there's a a genuine tension here that that I think we have to hold in balance. Uh, on the one side, we want to honor our God with something well done, right? So it's not like we don't want to give any thought or any care to the place that we design where we gather and worship. So I think there's some legitimacy to doing something beautiful for for God, even in the later description of the building of the tabernacle and the way that it would be fashioned. There's there's some indication there that that it was to be well done. It was it was done by a trained and skilled craftsmen. So, on the one hand, we want to do something that is good and we do our best for God, but then. On the other side of it, the other part of the tension is we can also do it in such a way so as to distract from worship, can't we? And so that when you come, you're you're so enamored by the paintings or the the stained glass or, or whatever it is that you're focused more on that than you are on the God for which we've come there to worship. And so somehow we have to hold that intention of, When we do things for God, let's do it well, but let's not do it in such a way that we're seeking glory for ourselves or seeking to draw attention away from the God that we're worshiping. And that seems to be what's behind these commands, to just come and worship simply. Make a simple altar, either out of earth or of uncut, undressed stones. We also see that the worship of the true God involves sacrifice, atoning for sin, doesn't it? the worship of the true God involves sacrifice and atoning for sin. He says, when you do make an altar of earth for me, then on that you will sacrifice your burnt offerings and your fellowship offerings, your sheep and your goats and your cattle. So this is a, this is the very first indication of how to honor and worship the Lord through sacrifice. There are many, many more prescriptions and laws that are given later in the scriptures. So this is just the beginning of it. But we see from the very beginning of time all the way through the Old Testament era, all the way to the time of Christ, that the forgiveness of sins was done through the shedding of blood, wasn't it? From the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, when God came and killed an animal and provided coats of skin for Adam and Eve, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the time of Jesus giving himself to the death of the cross, The remission of sins was through the shedding of blood, was through sacrifice. And so burnt offerings, they were a sacrifice given to atone for sin. Peace offerings or fellowship offerings, they were offerings that were done so as to gather in the Lord's presence and to celebrate with thanksgiving what the Lord had done for his people. And so the Lord is to be worshipped through sacrifice, through substitution, through the shedding of blood. We also see in this passage that the true God, in the worship of the true God, that it is not isolated to only one holy place. The worship of the true God is not isolated to only one holy place. At the end of verse 24, he says, wherever I cause my name to be honored. I will come to you and bless you wherever. Now, many commentators think that perhaps God here is speaking of of other places where special altars were set up in ancient Israel. And then at a point in time, then the, the temple or the tabernacle became the central place of worship. And even now, during this period of traveling and of wandering, the place where God is to be honored is going to move from place to place, isn't it? Because that tabernacle, that tent is being picked up and transported to different places. I think the intent of what God is saying here is this holy mountain, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, this holy mountain is not the only place where my name is to be honored. This is not the only place where my presence is to be associated. And that was in specific contrast to many of the ancient religions at that time that associated the presence of their gods with specific places, usually on mountaintops. And so God is saying, I'm not like those other gods, and, and my presence is isolated or located to those one that one special place that they reverence or honor. But wherever I say, wherever I dictate, wherever I give you, there my name can be honored. Again, God sets the agenda, right? God sets the agenda for how he's to be worshipped. And so he guides his people where he wants them to go. And if he says, plant the tent here and set up the holy place here, that's where I will be worshipped. And so it's not connected just to that one place. And then we come to the New Testament. And we come to Jesus meeting with the woman at the well in John chapter four. And he says, there's coming a time and now is when the true worshipers will not worship God on this mountain or that mountain, but true worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we're not like Islam in which one of the five pillars of Islam is to make a pilgrimage, right? To Mecca. So one of their, pillars of their religion is to make a pilgrimage to Mecca, to that holy place. You can be a full, obedient Christian and never make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You can, you can be a full, obedient, devoted follower of Christ and never make a pilgrimage to Bethlehem or Nazareth or any other place or Mount Sinai. In other words, our God is not isolated to be worshipped in one place. He is a God who, especially now in this new covenant era with the coming of Christ and the giving of his spirit to us all in our hearts, he can be worshipped anywhere his people are gathered. And so not isolated to one place. And then finally, in the last verse, verse number 26, we see that the worship of the true God means paying him reverence and honor. Worshiping the true God means giving him appropriate reverence and honor. And so in verse 26, we see this to, to our ears. It seems like kind of an odd command, an odd instruction. That is when you build your altar, don't build it up on steps so that you have to go up on steps so that you might expose yourself seems like an odd instruction. But but many commentators suggest that probably the reason for this is because of the very immodest and lewd way that many of the ancient Near Eastern peoples worshipped their gods. So there was no sense of propriety or no sense of modesty in the way that these false religions would worship their god. In fact, many, many of those false religions involved immoral sexual practices. And what God is saying here from the very beginning is, where I am to be worshipped, I am to be treated with honor and dignity and respect. And that means including the way that the priests approach me when they come to the altar to make a sacrifice. Make sure that they're modest, that they're covered, that they're, that they're in dignity, and that they themselves are, are in a manner of respect because that translates into the way that my name is honored. And so that seems to be the idea of verse number 26. So if I were to try to put all of this together in an idea, I would say that in in the worship of the Lord, our holy God is to be reverenced and honored in obedience to his word in such a way that he and he alone is the focus of our attention. In worship, the Holy Lord is to be reverenced and honored in obedience to his word in such a way that he and he alone is the focus of our attention. Not any other gods, not any other human achievements, but the Lord and the Lord alone being reverenced and honored by his people. And that principle applies today in 2018 just as much as it did 3,000 years ago. In the Old Testament time, because our God is still holy, isn't he? Our God is still holy, He is st- still righteous. He is still, as Deuteronomy 4 describes him, he is still the consuming fire, a jealous God, because the writer of Hebrews uses that exact description in the New Testament to describe our God. He is a righteous, holy, consuming fire. He is worthy of our reverence. He is worthy of our honor. And in fact, that's the third command, isn't it? Do not treat my name with disrespect, with this honor, but honor the name of the Lord. And so I think the the best way that we can honor the name of our God is to worship him from the heart where he is the focus and to worship him in accordance with the way that his word has prescribed. So following his word, following him from our hearts, with our eyes fully on him. That seems to be biblical worship. And that seems to be what this passage is driving at, that he and he alone will be the focus of our attention and that we would honor his name in doing so. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Lord and our God, when we read a passage of scripture like this, that describes your majesty, your holiness, the, the honor the reverence that your name is due. Lord, it reminds us of how much grace that we have been shown. How much mercy that we have received. How much love that has been lavished on us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we thank, we're thankful that you, the holy and righteous God, would have mercy upon us. And that you would call us to be your people that you would redeem us from our bondage to sin and then bring us into your covenant people, into your family. And now, Lord, like your people of old, we desire to worship you. We desire to honor your great name. So, Lord, help us to do that in our context, in our day, in in our times of worship here in this church. May we seek to honor your name in the way that we worship you. May you always be the focus of our lives and our attention. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.